Law Report with Michael Maswenningo, Kaya FM 95.9. On the Law Report tonight, we go international. We're talking about what's happening abroad between America, Iran and Iraq and why this should actually trouble us. Uh, that's on the Law Report tonight. So I look forward to your ears and spending the hour with you. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matsuening Bill. Happy New Year. First show for the year. It's good to be with you. I've really missed you. I think uh, I, the last time I, I, I did a show was on the first week of December. And I've been off for the last four weeks. So I've really, really missed, uh, missed you, missed doing the show and really just engaging with you um, as, as we've done over the years. So, so um, good to be back. Um, I wish you all the best for the year. Uh, may all your dreams and ambitions and everything that you've hoped for come true for 2020. I think uh, 2020, it's like a round number. It's a beautiful round number. And I think that I hope that it's, it's, it's truly, it brings what it promises. It's certainly uh, my hope for you. Um, something that obviously um, happened at the very year um, of 2020, uh, as early as the 3rd of January, there was an assassination of a commander of one sovereign country, a military commander. And I think that sort of worries me and I think that it should worry all of us in the world because um, there are some things which have become the foundation of our civilization where we understand that whoever decided to make these borders has made them and we are now living with these borders. But within those borders, we have sovereign states all of which are entitled to their sovereignty, to their independence, and to the right to self-determine how they want to run the affairs of their country and also to manage their resources. And I think what worries me is that there are countries that decide for other countries their fate. And I think it's very much, you know, when I read about what's happened in, in, in Iraq, in Iran, it reminds me very much about what's happened, what happened in South Africa and what potentially is still happening in South Africa where, you know, we were minding our business on a sunny day and then boom, we got colonized, boom, apartheid. And all the time, there's just external parties deciding um, that we are now a colony. That's like a whole ambitious thing to do and to say, to say that whole country is my country. But at some point during this, the course of our civilization, we decided, hang on, there's a thing about international law and sovereignty. So let's respect that and everybody be independent. But are we truly independent? And and I find that the resource rich countries are probably at most, at the biggest risk of losing their independence and their independence is always threatened. Um, and, and, I, and I think what then happens in 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 Iran, in Iraq, uh, regarding an Iranian um, military leader, then concerns raises these concerns around, you know, where are we going? And and obviously, this not only has an effect, in my view, around you know independence of sovereignties, but we also <laughs> suffer as a result because it affects the oil price. It affects so many other things. So that's our topic for tonight. We're talking about the i guess the history of the tension between iran iraq and uh, and the us uh, why why we find ourselves here 
um, and and possibly, you know, the laws governing it, of course, there's been a law show. So I do look forward to engaging with you. And as always, the number to dial is 86 I'm joined by, uh, on the line by two professors, um, uh, Professor Klaus Loris. You'll forgive me, Prof, if I've said your name wrong. Uh, he's from the University of North Carolina. Professor Loris, good evening and thank you so much for yeah, joining us. Yeah, good evening and you pronounce my name perfectly. Good to hear. Good to hear. I wasn't very confident, admittedly. And also, Professor John uh, Stremlau, he's uh, with the Wirtz University and in the International Relations um, Department. Uh, Professor Stremlau, thank you so much for joining us. I hope I've pronounced well, your name correctly. Welcome back from vacation, Michael. 2020 <laughs> is going to be quite a year. Uh, indeed. Amen to that. Uh, you know, I, I, I support that wholly. You know, the, the history is obviously detailed. And, and, and perhaps if I can invite... Um, uh, Professor uh, Laris, insofar as, you know, just the history around the, I guess, the U.S. and this region of the Middle East, and maybe as just to kickstart the show, just start there, I think. Yeah, I mean, as we all know, the United States has had uh, very difficult relations with Iran, really, at the latest, since the 1979 hostage crisis. You can say that the United States has never really forgiven the Iranian uh, revolutionary government, which is still the government in Iran today, for that crisis. There were other crises in the 1980s where um, Iran was instrumental in killing U.S. soldiers and bombing the U.S. Uh, embassy in Beirut. Um, so the relations really have been uh, fraught with danger ever since. But Iran also has its grievances regarding the United States mm. during the same period of time, of course. But also when you look at the 1953 coup uh, uh, against Iran, against Iranian Prime Minister Mossadegh, which was uh, uh, organized by the United States in cooperation with the UK, that is still a point of grievance for Iran. So you can say uh, the, the post-war period has really been fraught with grievance and danger and hostilities between Iran and the United States. And it was hoped, of course, that the nuclear deal of 2015 would draw a certain line under that, that perhaps uh, uh, global relations with Iran could be reset with a new policy of engagement on the basis of that deal. But that has not been the case, not least because uh, President Trump in 2018 withdrew the United States from the deal which hadn't yet been ratified, but had still been signed by um, six world powers, including the United States. The others uh, were China and Russia and the three European powers, UK, Germany and France. So the United States has been the odd one out here. And ever since, uh, since 2015, the other five powers have tried to keep the deal going with Iran, keep to uh, try to re-engage with Iran, and also lure back the United States under Trump back into that deal. But as we have now seen with, uh, you know, the airstrike on Soleimani and uh, the uh, violence last night, uh, that that hasn't uh, been successful, and relations are as fraught as they probably haven't been for, for many years now. Which is, you know, just going back to where you started, Prof, where you're talking about America's point of view, where they're still unhappy about the um, what happened around 1988. But you know, you can't be unhappy that your actions are reversed because the the when I look at the the history, the trajectory of the history, it seems quite clearly that the the start of all of this is the 1953 overthrow. Because you know, up until then, I'm not aware of any 
US involvement. And it was only at that point when America decided who must lead the country and removed the prime minister then um, that they start. So when that prime minister, um, and, and when, when the prime minister that is removed and replaced um, uh, with, with, with the sort of, uh, they call it, um, the, it's, I, I, I've assumed something of a king, like a monarch or something of that effect. When, when that monarch is removed, um, and, and sort of through a revolution, of course, America doesn't seem to me to have a leg to stand on to then say, hang on, um, we are upset at the fact that the person we installed is removed. It, it just seems, it just seems unsupportable by, by international convention and just common sense. No, the, the coup in 1953, which removed Prime Minister Mossadegh, which, who was uh, democratically elected, mm. and that was clearly a violation of international law. The United States and the UK did that in cooperation for really reasons of influence in, in Iran, because Mossadegh became increasingly independent of uh, both the United States and uh, Britain, uh, tried to nationalize the Iranian oil industry mm. and uh, limit uh, Western economic influence in the country. This is perfectly correct that that was a violation of international law, as I said, and should definitely not have been done. But current politicians in both the UK and the US would largely agree with that. I'm not sure if President Trump agrees with it, but many reasonable foreign policy experts in both the UK and the US view the the coup which removed uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh as a great uh, mistake and not a good thing to do. Mm. So I do think we should really be able to move uh, on from that sure. and should not go back to the 1953 coup which has been recognized as you know really bad and false uh, and we should really try to re-engage with Iran on a, on a new basis and not go back to old nationalistic grievances. There is a tendency in world history and the national countries uh, in the national histories of many countries including of course in Europe to go back to many grievances which go back 100 years, 50 years mm. but that usually is not very productive. It's understandable, and I'm not saying, you know, I cannot understand it, but it's not very productive to forge a new relationship. And also, I think the United States is totally wrong in still harking on the 1979 uh, hostage crisis. Again, of course, this was wrong this time by the um, mm. new Iranian uh, regime where student Muslim leaders became independent and uh, captured the hostages, but the regime fell, well, supported them in the end. That is totally undefendable, uh, uh, indefensible on the part of Iran. But again, I think this is now a long time back, over four decades, should the United States still uphold these grievances from 1979? I do not think so. At some stage, you have to move on, except wrong has been done and that wrong of course cannot be undone so i think you know both the united states and iran need to learn and also forget uh, what has happened in the past and try to move on and re-engage with uh, each other on a new basis and that was the nuclear deal of 2015 and here i think the obama administration showed a lot of initiative a lot of foresight mm. by engaging other world powers and iran and trying to really uh, force a new deal, a new deal of engagement with Iran, and unfortunately, that has collapsed. 
and and it seems to me, if I can invite you, uh, Professor John Stremlow, is that the world? I mean, the 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 other allies and and very important countries, America's allies, including um, uh, Germany, France, uh, and 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 them, but also Russia uh, and and China. All of them are, are watching this unfold, and and it seems as if everybody is powerless as against the U.S. In other words, the U.S. seems to be dictating international affairs and world affairs. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a very good question to ask, and particularly after the splendid introduction and historical insights that, um, that Professor Lars uh, shared with us and reminded us of. The um, <clears throat> President of the United States spoke to these issues, as you know, uh, about an hour ago, and um, I, I can't help being somewhat uh, uh, cynical about uh, uh, the re- re- references to the uh, hostage crisis back in 78, 79, which was Jimmy Carter's curse. Uh, he had been encouraged by David Rockefeller to bring in the Shah for medical treatment, and that infuriated the insurgents in Iran after the Shah had been forced by health and other reasons to leave. And, um, and, and yet it was the Republicans who benefited. It mm. was the Republicans who rode this uh, to Reagan and, and on to the uh, kind of political uh, framework that is uh, currently being played out in some ways by Donald, uh, Donald Trump. But um, I, I think when you're talking sovereignty today, uh, you really do have to uh, pause for a moment and think how much has changed. Yeah. Clearly, Professor Lars is right about uh, Mossadegh uh, being deposed back in 53. But right now, um, it, it, is, it is the offense uh, of, of pulling down um, Soleimani when he was visiting Iraq. That was, a, um, that was a, a infringement on Iraq sovereignty. And I think Melanie Pandor, on Friday, when she said on behalf of the South African government, uh, she was calling for uh, uh, collective effort by all the powers to encourage restraint. That was exactly the right thing to do. And she did draw attention to the problems of this fragile state that was rendered so fragile by the 2003 uh, invasion that Cabo um, and Becky and the South Africans urged uh, not be undertaken because they believed on the basis of their intelligence that there were no weapons of mass destruction mm. and they had a lot of expertise on nonproliferation and and um and, and yet here we here we are um trying to make a sense of this um Soleimani um clearly running the the cuts and the and the paramilitary and and and, uh, and insurgent militia forces that have grounded in in Yemen or in Syria or in um Lebanon um, is an infringement on the sovereign rights of those countries. So let's not kid ourselves. Um, he, he was not a he was not an angel by any means. But um, what really matters now is, as I think Professor Lars is pointing to, is that the countries of the world come together, and I think they have every incentive to do so to urge restraint and a political solution because they don't trust Donald Trump because he is so erratic and so um, emotive and, and, and self-serving in, in his actions and unpredictable. And, and it really is a question not of the U.S. dictating to the world, but America alone. America alone. They, they, um, 
Tom Trump came to power saying he was going to pull forces back mm. and then summarily abandon the Kurds in Syria that America had been allied with in, in fighting this terrible Assad regime. Um, and, and I didn't have any briefing on getting involved with Syria for sure, but he acts impulsively on the I'm a peacemaker kind of guy and I want to pull America back because we're wasting all our money in these places. And then he turns around and he knocks off the second most powerful man in Iran, uh, which 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 W. Bush and and uh, and Barack Obama rightly felt was not worth going after, but they were tracking him closely because they didn't like what he was doing. But he, he they wouldn't want to run the risk of of, of of mounting a decapitation strategy, which will be replaced because it will inflame the Iranians and build national unity in Iran when there's a lot of stresses in that society that have to be played out. I don't like theocracies and. And, and, and I don't care where they are. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in a country that belongs to all who live there in mm. South African spirit. And in Iran is a theocracy, and it's a Shia-Sunni fight. And I don't think we have a dog in that fight. Um, that, that, that's an old expression. I, I don't mean to impugn either mm. Sunnis or Shias. But the, it, is, it is a regional dispute that ought to be solved by regional means. And to the extent to which the international community is involved, it ought to be done collectively as Professor Lars rightly appointed was the case in the 2015 nuclear deal. Mm. So that's that's my take. I want to take a break, and if you've just joined us, we're talking, uh, we're addressing the the tension that is currently, um, you know, the, the various media outlets um, label it differently. Some some uh, touting even the possibility of some bloodshed, some further bloodshed, and even something of a war, um, and that follows the attack um, by the U.S. on on Soleimani, who is um, a military leader of 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 Iran. Uh, who was attacked in, in in Iraq. So that's our conversation. As always, you can give us a call by dialing the number 086-00-00959. I do look forward to having some of your thoughts and engaging with you on, on some of these very complex topics because I think that, you know, um, when, and I think I want to put this to, to my guests, uh, when apartheid happens, um, we then, you know, people die, people are dispossessed of land and everything, and then we say, no, 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 uh, it's over now. It's a democracy and, and, and let's all move on. Let's all find a way to build forward. But in the meantime, we've allowed, um, you know, gross violations to happen. And, and it seems as if, it seems as if that there are some nations who are able to just have, you know, do what they please. And then at some point start on a clean slate. And, and I want to, I want to put this to, 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 to my guests, but I'll do so when we come back. We're back after this. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matuining Bill. Conversation talking about what happened um, in in uh, Iraq um, uh, following the shooting or the the gunning down of uh, through a uh, 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 the, or the striking of a military leader in in Iraq uh, by the U.S. and which was sanctioned by the President uh, of America, uh, Mr. Donald Trump. And I'm joining me on the line are Doctor uh, Professor. Uh, Laris, as well as Professor Stramlau, and and before we took a break, professors, I, 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 and I understand on the one hand that you know even if you look at the Palestinian issues, if I think one and 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 I'm probably not the best person to to make this point, but one of the issues that it's so difficult to solve is that people are always going back in time, um, and saying this is what happened back in time, and there is no 
coordinated effort to try to say what what do we do for the now so one gets and appreciate the importance of of kind of worrying about now and saying what do we do going forward but I, I I get the sense that it's easy for some nations and I'm now parting now from Palestine which is more complicated um, there, there's a tendency of of doing gross you know uh, gross violations both from human rights point of view and at every level and then once everything is said and done and once these countries are stripped of their resources which because I think um, when I read the ultimate undertone of all of this is it's, it's it just culminates to me about oil and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll debate that further but it seems to me that after everything that's been said and done, we're just going to have a new deal and we are, we are going to move on. And, and international laws as they currently stand don't seem to operate against the big seven. Um, and and, and I, I guess one can quote many examples. What happened in Libya um, it might be one example. What happened in Russia as against the Kremlin. Um, uh, uh, so there's just so many examples of just self-help or a country deciding for itself what, of what it wants to do. And then at some point we can just sign an agreement and move on. Are there really consequences for the stronger, stronger nations? Well, that's a good question, of course. And you're right. Um, a strong nation like the United States, you can say might is right. And there is a certain uh, justification or a certain uh, reason for that and a certain truth in that statement that, of course, a powerful country like the United States has a military might, so it gets away with many things a much smaller country cannot. Mm-hmm. That the same applies to its economic might, of course. However, I think I don't want to uh, exaggerate that. There are international forums. For example, what we are doing now, we are uh, discussing and partially uh, condemning uh, uh, American uh, uh, behavior and action in Iran. Uh, The same is being done uh, within the United Nations and in other international fora, be it the G7, be it NATO, be it uh, other international fora. So I think uh, a strong country, a powerful country like the United States, yes, can get away with many more things than a smaller nation can, but it is not limitless either. It is not uh, unbound either. It is more unbound than many other countries, but the international community does keep a check on Trump, and we all criticize Trump a lot, so he Mm. cannot quite do what uh, he wants to do. On the other hand, we also have to ask us, despite I think we all agree that the airstrike on Soleimani was um, certainly geopolitically not very sensible. On the other hand, we have to ask ourselves, what is Iran doing? Why did Iran have the ambition to develop a nuclear bomb? What is Iran doing in the civil war in Yemen? What is Iran doing when it is shooting down protesters in Iraq who protested about Iraqi uh, 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 living conditions, lack of good living conditions? You know, Iran is not a a, a peaceful, democratic uh, regime. So we need to also criticize Iran and not now forget uh, that uh, there is a serious 
problem with Iran and the whole Middle Eastern region. Mm. Nevertheless, we also, of course, do not think it is very sensible what the United States has done because it only inflames uh, tension further in the Middle East. And when many people are worried about a war scenario which may come up in the near future, that is, of course, a very bad sign. We should prevent going towards or coming even close to the outbreak of a, uh, of a major war under all circumstances. Having said that, that doesn't mean what Iran is doing is particularly good and productive either. And, and, and I guess that's, that's also... Um another topic and and if that be the case should it be you know um the role of the u.s as a single country to seek to you know one it, it obviously has taken it upon itself to judge what is right what is right and what is wrong as a, as a country and and of course no, it shouldn't. Of, of course it you, shouldn't. you you may be, it may be correct in some instances but if i you know it's very easy for me to say to determine that what you're doing is right or wrong but isn't it the very reason we have organizations such as the united nations is that decisions are then taken collectively where we are now saying almost as a body corporate we are now saying collectively we don't like we don't think that what iran is doing is good for the common good of all of us so collectively we are going to engage and and therefore the and 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 yeah, i know you made the point about might is right but but should might be allowed to to dominate when there is because i think collectively the un is also of some might and or at least no, ideologically no, no. should be Absolutely not. You're mm. quite right. That is why we have the United Nations. And also, when you just look into the Western camp, the United States behaves as if NATO was an underling, if, all, if the other signatory powers to the nuclear deal were just uh, countries who could be told what exactly. to do. That is all totally wrong. Exactly. And I've always criticized that the United States has become much too unilateral. Certainly, it should first start cooperating with the, you know, with its close allies like the UK, Germany, and France, but also its so-called strategic rivals, Russia and China, in questions of, in these sort of questions. And it should go beyond that. Of course, go to the Security Council of the United Nations. It should not be the world's policeman. And ironically, as the other speaker has said, Donald Trump always rejected being the world's policeman. He didn't want America to be the world's policeman, but he increasingly falls back into that role, and I think this is not a very sensible role. We need to move much more towards a multilateral, generally multilateral and cooperative world, rather than increasingly towards a unilateral world. And, you know, if I can bring you, uh, Professor Stramlau, if, for example, Iran was to retaliate by killing a military leader of the US, I think we all know what would happen. Um, I think we, you, even though it is tit for tat in, in direct proportions, we know what would happen, but we also know that nobody would be able to stop that. And, and therefore, does it not sort of diminish the, all the, the treaties and all of what we've come to understand as international law? If we, we know that, and I think even when the Iranians are considering their options, they know that that's not one of the options that is available to them. Um, if might made right, then the U.S. would have um, uh, taken over Vietnam. If might made right, it, it would have taken over Iraq now rather than leaving the mess behind after that invasion. Mm. Um, there is, uh, it, it, for all of its flaws, 
uh, a democratic process that uh, Professor Lars had referred to. I, I can't speak for the more authoritarian regimes, but let me uh, divert just slightly because I think you're missing an elephant in the living room uh, in this discussion, uh, uh, Michael. And that is sovereign equality is an artifact. It's a creation of people after the Second World War will say, let's make everybody equal in the General Assembly. Even if you're a little Malawi or Lesotho, you'll have the same a vote as, as South Africa, even though South Africa was under apartheid. Mm. Well, you know, flash forward 30 years, and you got um, uh, a, a resolution in the Security Council that the human rights abuses in South Africa were so severe that this was a threat to international peace and security. Sure. And then you go fast forward to Tabo Mbeki when he's president and trying to get the African Union to take seriously the internal affairs of member states, which spill over to the borders, create the temptation for foreign invention, and cause problems. That's what the Africa Renaissance was all about. That's what the peer review mechanism was all about. They're very weak. We, I understand that. But it was this principle of non-indifference about the internal affairs of member states. That's where the big debate is going on. It's not right for Suleiman to be supporting militias, whatever the cause, in Yemen, in, in, in Syria, or wherever. It's not right for Donald Trump to, to knock him off, assassinate him. Yeah. And it's certainly not right for Donald Trump to say that if there's any more escalation from uh, Iran, that he's going to hit 52 targets, uh, the same number as the hostages back in the 1970s. Oh, is that where and the 52 be, comes from? And they, will be, <laughs> and, they will be, and they will be cultural centers in there. That is a flag, flagrant um, abuse of U.S. domestic law and international law. Mm. But you can't only any longer talk about sovereign equality without talking about human equality. That's South Africa's message to the world. That's a message which too easily gets obscured because of the temptation to fall back on the protections that sovereignty gives you, including hiding illicit financial flows and doing all sorts of nefarious acts which undermine the possibility of human dignity and human equality. We're in a different era now, and maybe, just maybe, Trump is so awful that he will spark a kind of a unity around the, around the world to realize that American domestic politics has got to bring about a change of regime. But, you know, they're not going to interfere, they're not going to assassinate him, uh, although I think there are probably a number of foreign leaders who wish they uh, could, uh, but, um, and, and friends of the United States. I mean, you know, he has, he has so abused due process in NATO that no one knows what to predict the United States is going to do. Mm. And, and, and that's now a reason that he's being impeached. And don't think that this killing of Soleimani was not done with an eye on deflecting attention from the impeachment hearing. Exactly, but we all know that. I mean, we all know that just well, a week but you, earlier. But you don't know how it's going to play out. What you don't know is where there is no certainties in this business. Uh, and, and, and that's why this is a co helpful conversation, because it doesn't mean that those listeners who are, are, are with us tonight are, are, should say, oh, this is too complicated, I can't figure it out. No, you have to reduce it to pretty much basics. Yeah. Um, sovereign equality, human equality, what are the rules of the game? Are our governments being honest to us? You know, are they telling us the truth? Trump doesn't tell the truth, 15,000 lies. In three years he's been in office, according to credible fact checkers. Uh, you know, I can't stand a leader who I don't at least have a reasonable sense of thinking that he or she um, is being forthright. 
Uh, and that's why I'm putting my money on Cyril Ramaphosa right now. It's a hard game he's playing. And I, and, you know, and as an enthusiastic supporter of the ANC, I understand the difficulties and fractions and fissures in it. But think about it. I don't want to talk any longer because Professor Lars is your resource on Europe, and, and, and I can't comment on that. But I think, to be fair, this situation in, in, um, in Iraq and Iran ought to be thought of in terms of South Africa's history and traditions of concerns, but also its preference for multilateralism. But multilateralism that is focused on values and on abuses of power, not just focused on respect for sovereignty because it's sovereign. I mean, who's sovereign today? Mm. We talk about human equality, and, and that seems to be the reason that sort of forms a sort of sort of the the grounding for somebody to go and inv- invade another country or even go beyond what we call sovereign um, equality but it it seems to me too convenient that the question of human equality or that argument finds itself in oil rich countries and and it doesn't find itself for example in Malawi Malawi has very little resources and the the very country that you've mentioned you don't have um, these you wouldn't have these topics, and 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 yes, I agree that issues of human rights are not in question in Malawi. But I'm sure we can think of other countries without resources where issues of human equalities are are more desperate than than what one finds in in in, in the Middle East, and and sure. and, and Iraq sure, being being the, the most Michael, important one. Yeah, Michael, you know the Mandela administration nevertheless felt compelled to send South African troops into Lesotho. For, for, for provocative and good reasons regionally, but it's been a problematic exercise for South Africa. But um, to come back to the to the to the larger question that you're raising about oil, that's also old thing. When Mossadegh was overthrown, that, that that Professor Lars referred to, oil was really a, a, a valuable asset that that got the U.S. involved in the Middle East to begin with, because it was the driver of engines. Now, sure. as Trump said just an hour ago, the Americans are are self sufficient in oil. They don't need oil now. What drives? But, but they, that may be so. But but the interest there because they may not they may not need it to supply America. But it's their companies that are benefiting from it to supply to the rest of the world. Mike, Michael, listen. Mm. Gets, let's get real here. The sure. companies that are making the big money are, are those that are producing the shale down in Texas and the oil for for exports. And what we really should be focused on is global warming, for God's sakes. We have less than 12 years. South Africa is warming at twice the global rate. I don't want to deflect contention. <laughs> I, I 100% agree Iran. with you, but global warming. But the reason I'm raising this, Michael, is because you and everybody else that's listening to this show has an interest in who succeeds or doesn't succeed Donald Trump in 2020. Yeah. This is the most important international event for South Africa, probably internationally, more than Brexit, and and I and, I, and I'm and I'm and I'm afraid that you're forgetting that the only way that the that the, that, that the U.S. government opposed apartheid in South Africa finally was when the ANC went to the American people and said, "This cannot stand. Mm. This cannot stand." And the Congress overrode Reagan's veto. If I, if I, if I can, can come in here, yeah. um, I think there is a good reason why uh, uh, Donald Trump or why American foreign policy has been so preoccupied with the Middle East. There's, of course, the oil question, which has increasingly become less important. And as uh, we just agreed, you know, the United States is fairly independent or has become fairly independent of the Middle East on oil. What it hasn't become independent from is, of 
course, of potential terrorist attacks. And what we saw in uh, the so-called 9-11 in the United States, that, of course, came from the Middle East. It came from uh, uh, um, Afghanistan and uh, uh, surrounding countries. And that is also still frightening the United States and particularly American politicians. So when we compare the African situation and the Middle Eastern situation, there is a reason why the United States is much more focused on the Middle East because they fear that region much more. No one expects to have a major onslaught coming from an African country onto the United States. But a repetition of 9-11 from a Middle Eastern country, from ISIS, Al-Qaeda, is seen as a real realistic possibility. And of course, there's also an ideological reason, and the ideological reason is Israel. The, 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 the links between Israel and the United States have become ever more intense under Trump in particular, but really it is a long process. And there's, of course, real danger to Israel of being attacked by hostile forces in uh, from the Middle East, uh, Iran, but also other countries repeatedly uh, make anti-Israeli remarks, and the United States very much feels to be the protector country of uh, uh, Israel for all sorts of reasons, but not least also ideological reasons. And I think that is the reason why the Western world, why President Trump is so obsessed with the Middle East, because there seems to be real danger coming. And the old question, I think, that has uh, really uh, become much less important than it used to be. And 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 but and and I hear that's a legitimate concern to be worried about about terrorism. But isn't it that what then happened from the oil issues and the disputes and or the overthrow of this one and that one and all of those things are the very things which then fuel terrorism? And and when you then breach international laws, where everybody seems to agree that what Trump has has did is not only sensible but potentially illegal, that also fuels Absolutely. additional terrorism. No, yeah. Yes, there's a paradoxical in American foreign policy. The very intervention in various countries in the Middle East inflames uh, terrorism, makes it even worse. Mm. It is a vicious circle, but the United States has been unable and partially unwilling to break out of that circle. And everyone knows that, you know, when you get involved, like what you saw recently in Iran, but also other activities, it really creates a new generation of young terrorists. Uh, Yes, uh, that is a paradoxical uh, development. And, of course, the United States has to break out of that, but a solution how to do that has not been found. Does it mean the U.S. should not get involved in the Middle East at all? Then they fear terrorism will come. If they get involved too much, terrorism will also come back to that. So it's a a dilemma they are facing, and they haven't been able to to overcome uh, and resolve that dilemma. And, and and the other thing is that so that I guess terrorism would frighten even me, but no doubt the UK, France, China, and Russia and Germany would also have the same fears. In fact, France has 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 its own history. Not with quite. It. I think it, mm. that's not quite. There were, of course, uh, severe uh, uh, terrorist attacks on London, as we know, on Madrid. There have been terrorist attacks into Paris and and yes. and Berlin to some extent. But I think Americans react more dramatically to the onslaught because there are so many uh, thousand miles further away. They are quite isolated. They have only benign neighbors like Mexico and Canada. They're really not exposed to any foreign dangers, while European countries have always been exposed to their neighbors, to other 
point threats in a way they are more accustomed to feeling <laughs> under threat. And that is for the United States something uh, why, for example, in, uh, uh, in 1940, uh, Pearl Harbor was such a, a shock to the United States or why 9-11 was such a shock to the United States. You know, the attacks on London and Madrid shortly thereafter were also shocks to Britain and, and Spain, but not quite as severely as 9-11 was to the United States. So I think that needs to be understood in a more psychological way, perhaps. Not, you know, because when you look at the actual numbers of victims, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense. They were actually not uh, that high compared to other terrorist activities in the world. But it's not the number of victims, but the very fact that it was possible to breach American borders and actually land an attack on American soil, something the United States has become accustomed to is impossible. And I think that means the reaction was much more dramatic and over the top. And I think also the reaction now to the sheer possibility, to the sheer threat that something like that might happen again is also much more dramatic and leads to a much more uh, dramatic response. It, it seems to me very difficult to to accept. And, and whilst I understand the point that you make, if you, if you think from the nuclear deal, everybody else seems to be happy that it addresses their legitimate fear of terrorism, that, that if they, there's assurances that they can send inspectors into uh, uh, Iran to check whether there's any uh, program to develop nuclear power. And they, they seem to have been happy to live with this, including Barack Obama himself. And, and it seems to me very difficult to accept that America or even Donald Trump, because that seems to be the issue. Is, is entitled to be more psychologically paranoid relative to other nations who, 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 who you know, death is death. Uh, I whether, whether you've suffered it for longer centuries or not. No, no, I, I, I don't think he's entitled to be more paranoid, but he is more paranoid and we all have to deal with it, whether he is entitled or not, because he is such a powerful leader, because it is such a powerful country, uh, it needs to be, its fears need to be taken seriously, whether these fears are justified or not, doesn't really matter, because the reality is we have to deal with these fears. That is perhaps a sad statement that it comes back to might is right in a way, or, you know, you fears, the fears of a great power are perhaps more fundamentally important than the fears of a small power, but in a way, this is the reality of our world today. I want to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to continue my discussion. I'm joined um, on the line by uh, Professor Klaus Laris, and, and he's from the University of North Carolina, as well as Professor John Stremlau. He's from the uh, Overs University uh, in the International Relations Department. We're back after this. The Law Report with Michael Matweening Bell, Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back. We're talking about the tension between the U.S. and um, um, the Ira- um, Iran, where that is currently unfolding now, and and you know threatens us even all the way here in Africa. And uh, joining me to understand some of the issues are Professor Klaus Laris as well as John Stremler. If I could bring you in, uh, Professor Stremler, and and just talk about. I'm just trying to understand the position of some of these um, countries, which are essentially in their own right quite powerful if you think about you know the the u.s unilaterally taking the decision to withdraw from from the accord uh, the nuclear deal that was entered into and then 
having to do essentially what America is saying to say that we're imposing sanctions and now you've got to be part of this. It seems to me that, that the people or, kind of, or nations that are, that are almost vulnerable are, are not only us, the, the, the smaller economies, but generally everybody, including countries one would consider to be big players in, 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 in the global space. Is my sense anywhere near accurate? Well, I frankly don't think so, Michael, for yeah. reasons that relate to my own um, uh, work on on, uh, on on the changing uh, protocols and norms that are prevailing in Africa, which is a constant of weak states and um, vulnerable states, for sure. <laughs> But I also do this in the background of what Professor Lars was speaking about with regard to the U.S. Uh, tendency to be paranoid and to be to be have that be exacerbated by the terrorist attacks, and that forces me to say, well, who were the terrorists? They were Saudi Arabian uh, nationals that had left because of the theocracy there, and they were protesting it. And that's the closest ally that Donald Trump has in the Middle East outside of uh, Israel. And uh, he, 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 he likes strong leaders and theocracies more than the messiness of democracies. But if, if 70,000 votes had gone another way in three states, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton would have been president. And I frankly think we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm, mm. So that it really does matter who gets elected. And the ANC learned that in the anti-apartheid struggle inside countries around the world. They were a non-state actor, but they did have an eye on what was happening at, at, the, at the UN and intergovernmentally, and they managed to work it in an acceptable way. And they draw in South Africa's soft power in the world, if it could be recaptured, as I think Cyril Ramaphosa is trying to do after the lost years of the Zuma administration, uh, is trying to be a little more sophisticated in all this. It is unacceptable for Saudi Arabia to go ahead and kill Khashoggi, the, the journalist, in Turkey, for God's sake. Mm. And yet the, Donald Trump will look the other way because Donald Trump is a terrible, terrible leader right. and, and on multiple levels. And, and you, you, you say, well, the structures matter, and I'm not just saying that they don't. I'm saying that the structures matter if they can control a, a demagogue or an authoritarianly inclined leader. And many of, the, many of the countries today are having a very difficult time doing that. South Africa is one of the, the few bastions of, of, of liberal democracy still. The stress test of our constitution seems to be holding so far. But all of the other BRIC members that we belong to are, 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 are run by ethnic nationalists today, the other four. And, and I see in, in the Middle East ethnic nationalism and theocracy predominating. It's a Shia-Sunni conflict. And and what role the U.S. has in that has got to be debated and will be debated. But maybe Trump is going to win in American public opinion. But that's something South Africa has to follow very closely and care about. And by the way, work with other countries as much as it can to try and restrain Donald Trump's uh, impetuous and, and unpredictable behavior and, and work around and, and, and create a conditions maybe that will have the American people remove him from office. Dr. Lawrence, uh, Professor Lawrence, you want to jump in? 
Yeah, I, I quite and basically I quite agree with what uh, was just being said. But I think uh, the speaker's um, attitude towards the powers of uh, uh, Donald Trump is too pessimistic. While uh, that, uh, while the, the U.S. president, in my view, regrettably has a large uh, uh, power base in foreign policy, he can really act in a pretty unlimited way, but we saw that in the past as well, including under President Obama and also under President George W. Bush, who after all invaded Iraq without any real reason. So that is not just typical for, for Donald Trump. Mm. But one has to say mm. that the American system so far has worked. Whatever we may think of President Trump, he has just been impeached. That is, you know, a unique uh, occurrence that has only happened four times in all of American history. So the U.S. House of Representatives is actually doing its job by checking and controlling uh, President Trump, has been extremely critical of his uh, policy towards uh, Ukraine, also towards uh, Russia, when you think of the Mueller uh, report. Also, when you look at domestic American politics, uh, the court system is still working. Uh, Donald Trump cannot do what he wishes to do. He has lost many court cases, has been called back in many domestic matters. Um, so I think, you know, we shouldn't give up hope that the American system is collapsing and that a dictator or something similar to that is developing. While I do think that uh, Donald Trump is not a good foreign policy leader, also not a good domestic leader, but particularly in foreign policy is uh, too irrational and too emotional, that doesn't mean that the American system is collapsing and they are, that they are not having a handle on the, the president in power. It could perhaps be better, and I'm not saying things couldn't be improved, but uh, Donald Trump has not developed in, into being a dictator or being able to do what he wants, despite perhaps uh, the appearance when we just look at the airstrike on uh, uh, Soleimani recently. I, I, I hear there seems to be general consensus around um, Donald Trump being erratic, uh, you know, um, uh, emotional and all of those. But th there is nothing that I can point to that, that point that, that seems to, su to support that. It, it seems to me everything is calculated. I mean, just a light example. There's a, you know, everybody knew, everybody knows how the American uh, population uh, what feels against, you know, decisiveness of this nature where somebody says, you know, I am fighting um, uh, uh, terrorism on your behalf and I've just attacked um, Iran. And, and they know that not only does this serve to, to, to remove the attention from the topic of impeachment, which, was, which is still important and it's still ongoing, but it also secures him in the minds of the people that he was able to, to persuade even in the beginning when he was, when he was, um, uh, supporting almost white supremacy so so I, I i always seem to take a view and even what he's doing with china and and none of it is accidental emotional or erratic it seems quite calculated and only he can be trusted to do those things and and not succumb to or, or be bound by diplomacy in, including what he did that. at the paris accord yeah 
Well, he would say that, of course, that it's all well-planned and strategic and so on, but uh, I think, of course, that is not the case. Even that airstrike on Soleimani, that was an emotional response. Initially, the United States actually was, had targeted an Air Force base. They had not targeted Soleimani, and the Pentagon suggested options to him, and one of the options which no one really thought should be taken was the killing of Soleimani, and initially uh, Trump rejected it, but when he saw television pictures about pro anti-American protests in Tehran. He got so annoyed and so emotional, he then ordered the airstrike. That, to me, is an emotional, erratic decision that has nothing to do with strategic and careful planning at all. The same happened with many other uh, incidents, like the uh, uh, like when he had the telephone uh, t uh, phone conversation with the um, Turkish president. And during that phone conversation, he was convinced by... Uh, uh, Erdogan's personal charisma or personal powers of persuasion to withdraw the troops from Syria and to uh, and, and to leave basically the area open to both Turkish and Russian forces. That was not well planned. That was, there was no strategy behind it. Mm. And as you know, uh, America's own military were totally desperate and totally uh, astonished by that decision. So I actually do think there are many, many incidents where Trump has been influenced by basically the last person He's, uh, he talked to or by uh, uh, shows on television, Fox, uh, uh, Fox News is, of course, uh, Fox uh, News television channel is well known for being watched by him regularly. And he's really deeply influenced what some of the anchors and some of the guests tell him via that uh, channel. And often a reaction and a tweet follows within minutes of he, he having watched a show. And that all is not strategic, careful planning. This is erratic, this is emotional, and you can say no other president has been as influenced by what other people tell him, by television pictures, often, of course, terrible television pictures, as Donald Trump has. And, of course, also the tweeting, which often occurs within a minute of something yeah. having taken place, which has annoyed him, that is a very emotional, impulsive reaction. No other president has done that, either by tweets or statements or even uh, interviews. They've all checked with the advisors. They've all uh, had a filter in between uh, the public and what they then come out and say. And Donald Trump acts without any filters and mm -hmm. any mm -hmm. advice and rejects advice. This is all very impulsive and emotional. And, of course, Donald Trump would like us to believe he is uh, a great strategist. It's all very carefully <laughs> planned. But I think that is what I would call fake news. I want to I want to take a, a last question, and there's something that you you, you said, uh, Prof uh, Stamler, around South Africa's role as a soft power. If just as a parting shot, and for for our, our benefit as you know, as South Africans, because I think we this is something that you know our role uh, internationally. I I wonder if we have a common understanding of just what role we play internationally. So if you could just make us understand what you meant by South Africa being a soft power in the world. 
Well, I watched uh, the the reaction to Mandela's election and the transition uh, to to a democratic uh, South Africa that none of us predicted could happen peacefully, and it was the inspiration of the world. And that's been lost during the, the Zuma years, and we know how divided the, the party is right now sorting out these things. But I think what you're pointing to, Michael, and you alluded to it, is that who governs countries matters, and how did Donald Trump get elected? How does uh, Cyril Ramaphosa get elected? Elected uh, 179 votes in Nazareth was was a very thin margin, and there are flaws in our democratic systems. The U.S. system has uh, overweighted underpopulated states, and whites are now becoming a minority, and they don't like it. And that's an oversimplification, but it means that the 2020 election is so terribly important. And for South Africans to speak to the point of being a unified country. Uh, unified in this diversity, a country for all, mm. is really an important message. Mm. It's an important message that, mm. that, that South Africa needs to project. Gives us a moral more, high more ground. Absolutely. Mm. It, 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 it has a claim to that moral high ground despite the, the last nine years, and it should regain that, that moral high ground. And I think there's a receptivity to it because the world is moving in this direction. It's getting more pluralistic. Right. And all right. So it's something to reflect like on. It's, it's something to reflect on. One one thinks one thinks that um, it's some. You know, I think when you l- listening to domestic issues, you know, there's a lot of talk whether you know that 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 position was the whether it was the p- correct position. And I think that's probably another debate for another day. But let me yep. uh, take this opportunity to thank you very very much. I, I enjoyed the show and I found it completely thank enlightening. You. Thank you so much to both of you, Professor uh, uh, Laris as well as Professor Stremler. I look forward to engaging with you again. Okay. No, thank you very much. It was great fun, and thank you very much for your excellent questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you so thank much you. to the Afropolitan. As always, um, you know, um, I think we, we need to engage these issues a lot more because I think we talk about the economy uh, and the economy is not sort of within the context of what happens domestically. The economy is affected by what happens internationally. And some of these international affairs must concern us and they do concern us. But also, I think personally, some of these things that happen makes me feel very vulnerable as a, as a country of only 50, 54 odd million people and, and, and not so strong um, financially and we're having our own issues. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I shudder to think what would happen if, if somebody was to decide to attack us. I hope that never happens. But I also shudder to think what might be happening in some of those countries where they are being attacked or even those countries where they are fearing the possibility of being attacked by terrorists. Altogether terrible, um, but certainly worth engaging. I look forward to being with you again next Wednesday. From me, Michael Matsuning, Bill, good night. That was The Law Report with Michael Matsuning, Bill, Kaya FM 95.9.